Before you're seated, let's read Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you. You may be seated. This past Monday, as we were preparing for tonight's service, Tim Stafford raised a question about what season of David's life was he in when he wrote this psalm. Because David took care of his father's flock when he was a teenager, it's an easy assumption that this was probably written in his younger years. But David is telling us how the Lord has shepherded him through his life. Experiences of green pastures and still waters, that could happen at any point in his life. But a warrior in his 20s or 30s, in the prime of his strength and confidence, he doesn't generally refer to difficult times as being the valley of the shadow of death. These words come a lot more naturally from someone in their later years, a man more aware of his mortality, more aware of how life connects together in strange ways, and one disaster can contribute to another. Now, there's nothing in the psalm to date it, no inscription like there is in Psalm 51 or 32 that ties it to a specific incident. But the reflections are those of a man who has seen the varying colors and hues, the intensities and contrasts of a long journey with the Lord. There were several dark seasons in David's life, most because of what was done to him. But there's a significant season of David's life when he brought darkness on himself. He sinned blatantly and then tried to conceal it. David's heart had strayed and his feet had followed. God confronted him in his sin. And when David responded in repentance, the Lord moved toward him so David could serve again. He does the same for us. When we fail to walk with the Lord, when we choose to sin, God will confront us, sometimes through a person, sometimes via a message, sometimes directly by his spirit, conveying his grief to us so we feel his displeasure. We call it conviction. But when we respond, he makes two provisions for us. 
He restores our soul and he realigns our steps. Let's look at the first. The Lord restores our soul. Verse 3a from Psalm 23 says exactly that. He restores my soul. Now, when, when David referred to a soul, he could have meant one of three things. He could be referring to a person, such as when we say every living soul. He could mean someone's life, as in his soul departed, which is one of the ways that we speak of death. Or he could be talking about the inner life of the person. And that's the meaning that makes sense here. See, sheep don't have a soul in a spiritual sense. So if we were talking about a sheep, well, then this would just mean that that sheep's life was restored. Its health was brought back. We read in verse 2 about lying down in green pastures. Well, there's one of the uniquenesses, one of the idiosyncrasies of a sheep is that if a sheep lays down and then rolls too far so that its feet lose contact with the ground, it can't right itself. It can't get up, and that's called a cast sheep. Looks like this. I think we got a picture of it. He's stuck. <laughs> and because of how a sheep's system works, if the shepherd doesn't rescue it in a few hours, the sheep could die. David, however, is referring to himself and not a sheep. But David also had this experience of being trapped in his sin with Bathsheba. But I think there's more involved than David being in the wrong place and making a wrong choice. You see, serious sins don't come out of nowhere. So I'd like to paint a picture for you that I believe the scriptures portray about David's fall and how the Lord restored him. So it involves not just Bathsheba and her husband, but the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, the last record we have of David facing the Philistines in battle is in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and, and subdued them, and David took Methag Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, this is a summary statement of a broader conflict, obviously. David finally subdues the arch enemy of his predecessor, King Saul. But something significant happened in the process of subduing the Philistines. That account appears in the specially designed ending for 1 and 2 Samuel that covers chapters 21 to 24. So this particular story is in 2 Samuel 21, starting at verse 15. We read, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, 
came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, at this time, would have been in his late 40s. His stamina wasn't what it used to be. A king who got tired on the battlefield became a target and a liability. He was far too valuable to risk his life in battle when the nation looked to him for political, military, and spiritual leadership. His men recognized how critical David was to their nation, and they entreated him to hang up his sword. Now, because it's part of the special ending, this story is told out of sequence in, in 2 Samuel, but it best fits the timing of that last known clash that we were looking at in 2 Samuel 8. Because two chapters later, when the Ammonites start to get aggressive, David doesn't go. He sends Joab, his commander, and the rest of the army to deal with him, which they do. But that doesn't set well with David. See, David's identity, as far as we've known him, has been that of a warrior. First in Saul's army and then as a fugitive from Saul, but leading his mighty men. And then he became a warrior king, dealing with the enemies that surrounded Israel. God gave him victory everywhere he went. Once he had captured Jerusalem, made that the national capital, the task of ruling the nation had grown. Now, David felt the weight of the crown, the responsibilities of leading a nation, and he also felt the realities of aging. David sat on his throne while his mighty men and the army were on the field of battle. That was chapter 10. <clears throat> well, the Ammonites regrouped the next year after the rainy winter season, and they brought reinforcements, allies. And that's when we read the famous line from 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, mind you, this is the same thing that happened in the last chapter. But the last chapter didn't contain the disaster that's about to happen. David at this point is 50 years old. Now, he's refrained from battle for at least a year, maybe two. And the reality of this is starting to fester, I think, in his soul. Who is he? Is he still a man? Imagine the self-doubt. He's watching from the balcony as Joab and David's men fade into the distance, marching off to war. What does David do with himself. He longs to be leading the charge with armor on, on his chest and sword on his thigh, 
And instead, he's in the palace, he's bored, and he's restless. Now, the next verse finds David arising from his couch in the late afternoon for a walk on the roof. It's a picture of leisure and listlessness. He walks to the edge of the balcony, takes a view of Jerusalem from his palace, being on the high point of the city. And his vision is arrested by the sight of a beautiful woman bathing in the privacy of her home, visible from nowhere else except the balcony of the palace, and nobody's supposed to be there as far as she knows. We know the rest of the story. After having her brought up, committing adultery with her, she sends word later to David that she's pregnant. To conceal a sin, David has her husband killed in battle, and then he marries her. And for nine months, David kept up this charade. But the maintenance costs were high for David. He describes his experience in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David was holding on to his pride and trying to keep his sin a secret. Like a cast sheep, he was trapped. His soul was shriveling. His shepherd came for him. But David had not yet acknowledged that he was stuck. But finally, verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That last part was a surprise. David fully expected that when he owned the fact that he had committed adultery and murder, that his life was forfeit, that he would be put to death. That was the penalty for those sins. But the Lord sent a message through his prophet Nathan to say, the Lord has put away your sin, David. You will not In the years that followed, the Lord restored David, restored his soul. David actually starts Psalm 32 with the words of relief that came at that time when he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. No more denial. No more pretending. David has come clean before the Lord. Now he knows again the blessing of being in relationship with the Lord his God. To live 
is to experience change. We all know that. Each season brings its opportunities and challenges, its joys and sorrows. How we respond to them determines how they shape us. Novelist Stephen Lawhead says through one of his characters, life is a school of the spirit. Learning is our soul's requirement and suffering our most persuasive teacher. In case you're wondering, that's from his novel Byzantium. Uh, now, imagine with me Johnny Erickson, 17 years old, swimming with friends as they dived into the water. But when she dived in, she hears this sickening crunch as her head hits a sandbar and her neck is compressed. Immediately, she is paralyzed from the neck down. Her sister saw her float to the top of the water and gathered the friends and they got her out. In the months that followed, Johnny says the despair and depression were so great that even though she was a Christian, she would have committed suicide, except that she couldn't use her hands or her feet. Johnny recently commemorated 50 years of God's faithfulness to her in her wheelchair. She wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition that's entitled, Reflections on the 50th Anniversary of My Diving Accident. Here's a little bit of what she wrote. Recently, I was at my desk writing to Tommy, a 17-year-old boy who just broke his neck body surfing off the Jersey Shore. He's now a quadriplegic. He will live the rest of his life in a wheelchair without use of his hands or legs. When it comes to life-altering injuries, quadriplegia is catastrophic. Like Tommy, I was once the 17-year-old who wretched at the thought of living without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much. I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. Few of us encounter anything this bleak. But our disappointments, our pains, our traumas, they're real to us. They diminish who we perceive ourselves to be. They threaten our hopes for the future. In our pain and desperation, we grasp at whatever swings into view as though it were a lifeline, as though it were the answer. There's a proverb that says, one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, Everything bitter is sweet. Through the eyes of desperation, an abomination becomes an opportunity. 
The conquest of Bathsheba becomes an affirmation of David's virility. A powered wheelchair appears to Johnny as a means to end her life. What bitter thing have you and I taken as sweet, as an answer to our dilemma, as an anesthesia to our pain? From our comfortable place here Sunday night, Moody Church, we can plainly see that David was horrendously wrong, that Johnny's thinking is terribly twisted. But when it's our dreams that lie shattered around our feet, when it's our ability to hope for the future that has been crippled, we may not choose much better. We may find ourselves stuck on our backs with our feet up in the air, cast sheep. You remember that picture? There it is. Our shepherd comes for us, especially in times like those, not to chide us, not to criticize us, but to turn us from upside down to right side up. To give us life. He comes to restore our souls. What does that mean? To restore our souls. I think the clearest understanding of what David meant by that is gathered by looking at his life. Immediately following David's adultery, his life was beset by disaster. Seeds that he had sown by his sin sprouted and bore fruit. Rape, murder, abuse of power happened among his own children. But God was not done with David. He saw him through the heartbreaks. He saw him through the crises. And in the last season of David's life, the Lord gave to David the plans for the temple that Solomon was to build. God gave to David the plans for how the worship of the nation was to be structured at that temple, how the priests and Levites were to be assigned to new duties. David designed and commissioned musical instruments to be made for use at the temple. And then he crowned Solomon king and launched the greatest season of peace and prosperity that Israel had ever known. My point is this. God did not kick David to the curb and label him useless because he had sinned. The Lord healed him from the inside out. He restored David's soul. David was able to dream again. He was able to believe that God could work through him again to bless others and to advance his kingdom. If God can do that after David's sin, he can restore your soul. If you've committed the same sin for years and have lost hope of victory, he can restore your soul. 
If you've messed up in ways that you are too ashamed even to think about, he can restore your soul. If you have been damaged by what others have done to you, he can restore your soul. Time won't permit me to tell the stories of those whom God has restored, but ask Felix Lelusa, a member of our church, who shared his testimony about three weeks ago on Sunday. Ask Virginia Bentley, who shared her story here a number of years ago and, and teaches the precept class on Sunday afternoon. Ask Hazeltine Wilson, longtime member of Moody Church, brand new employee at Pacific Garden Mission. I found out today she just got the job. Who, who went through the human trafficking program at Moody Bible Institute because of her experience being trafficked. See, there are stories all around us that tell us God can restore Amen. your soul. Through this message, your shepherd is coming to you. His cast sheep. He wants to turn you right side up. Will you let him? It means owning our sin. It means telling him our hurts and pains. None of this is news to him. but It's our way of saying yes to his offer. For instance, when, when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda, there was a man who had been laying there, who had been invalid for 38 years. John chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? Huh? You, you, you know, the, the story there was that there, there was... The, the idea was that, that that water that he was laying by was supposedly uh, an angel came down and stirred it up and the first one in got healed. And so he was laying there waiting for his chance. You know, you, do I want to be healed? No, Jesus puts the question to him to give him the opportunity to respond. The good shepherd has come. Will you look to him? Do you want him to restore your soul? He's waiting for you. And his promise is that he'll be with you for the whole journey. Why do I say that? Because when the Lord restores our soul, the second point of our message tonight, he also realigns our steps so that our path is in keeping with his. Psalm 23, 3b, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. David had known what it is to walk with God before he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he knew the green pastures. He knew the quiet waters. He knew what it was to trust God, to walk with him, to be used of God, to bless others. But he departed from that path and chose to take another. Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man. 
but its end is the way to death. But see, now, now the Lord has restored David. David has repented. He had a change of mind about going his own way. He turned around. God had set him right side up. The Lord goes before him now and says to David, follow me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. How easy it would be to miss the richness that's contained in this line. All we have to do is forget who it is that's writing. And it'd be a simple thing for us to consider it as a, a reaffirmation that we should be good girls and boys, do the right thing so the Lord doesn't look bad. The loss would be ours if we understood it that way. You see, the Lord is good. He is phenomenally good. He is good beyond our wildest dreams. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one who got lost along the way. David describes this same one in Psalm 103 as the one, verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust this is our god kind generous gracious patient forgiving compassionate understanding this is the god that david calls shepherd John Piper makes the point that God is the best good there is. And when he wants to give us the best, he gives us himself. God's name represents who he is. The name emanates from the person. The name does not make the person. God's name means what it means because God is who he is. He is all that we just read and far more. And he leads us as he does because it's an expression 
of who he is. Again, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The paths of righteousness are paths of goodness. See, because God is good to us, he leads us to be good to others. Because he's compassionate toward us, he leads us to be compassionate as we deal with others. Because he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities, he leads us to be gentle with others in their sins so that they might return to him and be restored. It's not that the line between sin and righteousness is unclear with him. Sin is sin. It leads us in paths that seem right but end in death. No, that's not what he wants for us. He is good. He leads us out of sin into his paths of righteousness so we can experience his goodness. The Lord brings his good to all who are oppressed, it told us. So we work for justice and the alleviation of oppression. He made known his ways to us, so we make known his ways to others. As we follow his leading, we are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you get the picture? This is our shepherd. We are his people because he restored us. He lifted us from our entrapment and set us on our feet. And then he called us to follow him where he leads. To be restored is to be a blessing to others as the Lord is a blessing to us. Psalm 23, verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Father, you're good good beyond our wildest dreams. Forgive us for the many times that we miss it because life doesn't go the way we want it to in our sinfulness. Forgive us for our short-sightedness. Forgive us for choosing not to follow you and going another way. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your patience and your grace and your steadfast love and your kindness and compassion that you come to us when we are upside down, when we are trapped, when we have lost hope, when we cannot see a way forward with you. You come and you restore our souls. And then you lead us again in your paths of righteousness, your right and good way. Thank you for being so wonderful. Thank you for meeting us where we are and taking us to where we need to be. Strengthen us to trust you, to believe you, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.